Welcome to episode two of New Renaissance Bookcast with me, David Lorimer, from the Scientific and Medical Network. Each episode, I review one or two significant books across a number of disciplines, including science, health, philosophy, spirituality, psychology, ecology, and politics. In this episode, my first choice is Religion as Metaphor by David Tacey. This is a book that should be widely read, but sadly the publishers are pricing it out of the reach of ordinary readers, so hopefully it will soon appear in paperback. Subtitled Beyond Literal Belief, this searching study steers a middle course between the scylla of uneducated belief or religious literalism and the charybdis of educated disbelief or fundamentalist atheism. As a sympathetic scholar of Jung, David parts company with Freud and Dawkins by maintaining that religion is in fact metaphorical rather than illusory or delusory. It is a serious error to conflate belief with faith. His view is that religion is not a series of dogmas to be believed, but a collection of poems to be experienced. Knowledge can destroy belief, but not faith. Both science and nearly 200 years of biblical criticism have made it increasingly problematic, even untenable, to take a literal view of the Bible, even though millions still do. Some readers may recall my review of Beyond Belief in Network Review 122, where James MacDonald spelled out the history of distortions, mistranslations, forgeries and interpolations, not only in the New Testament, but also in the development of Jesus into an archetypal and mythical figure. Compare the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Hence David's argument that the only credible way forward is to interpret religion methodologically and symbolically so as not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. He advocates a renewal of faith, but dissociated from belief. In a series of chapters, he discusses the status of miracles, the soul's symbolic code, Jesus the metaphor, the myths of the virgin birth and resurrection, and symbolic meaning of the apocalypse and waking up. He agrees with Joseph Campbell when he said that every religion is true when understood metaphorically, but when metaphors are interpreted as facts, then there is trouble. David's position opens him up to attack from both sides of the fundamentalist divide, both literalists and new atheists. While I'm very sympathetic to his quest, I do part company with him on his interpretation of some miracles. He categorizes them all as metaphorical, while I would maintain that at least the healing miracles are credible in relation to evidence through the ages up to our own time. Spiritual figures like Peter Dunoff and St. Padre Pio have reproduced such phenomena, although I would agree with him on other matters such as the feeding of the 5,000 and turning water into wine. He is anxious to avoid any taint of supernaturalism, which I think also affects his interpretation of the resurrection. For me, the Pauline distinction between the natural and spiritual body makes a lot of sense in terms of modern studies of post-mortem apparitions. Some early theologians like Tertullian were keen to insist on the extreme and incredible position of the resurrection of the flesh 
rather than the body. Ironically, the rise of science and its one-dimensional insistence on logos was paralleled by the continuing literalism of fundamentalists and the Protestant focus on the word rather than tradition. Neither understood the meaning of mythos and its relation to logos, which is beautifully explained by Karen Armstrong when she says that myth was concerned with the timeless and constant, with meaning and context, directing our attention to the eternal and universal. Similarly, Mircea Eliada writes that myth is not a stage of consciousness, but rather a structure in the content of consciousness, while Jung reflected that we have become rich in knowledge, but poor in wisdom. Myth is naively defined as falsehood rather than another layer of meaning expressed symbolically. An important theme running through the book is transformation, the real meaning of metanoia, which fundamentalists mistranslate as repentance. Sin, hamartia, literally means missing the mark. Jesus came to initiate a more intimate and inner relationship with God, a spiritual revolution that is also a recovery of spirit and in sympathy with Gnosis. David urges the reader to wake up to interiority, the imminent divine leading to a new self beyond the narcissism of the separate ego, a journey towards completion and wholeness rather than perfection. It is our normal state of relative somnolescence that needs to be overcome and deconstructed, as Socrates also advocated. The demythologization agenda of Rudolf Bultmann is not enough, since beyond deconstruction we need reconstruction and Jungian remythologization, the acquisition of symbolic literacy. Symbols are spiritually but not literally true. In an interesting exchange with the progressive theologian Don Cupid, whom I knew in Cambridge in the late 1970s with his book The Myth of God Incarnate, David rightly pulls him up as demonstrating the perils of a purely intellectual approach to religion, leading to rationalism, reductionism, relativism, atheism, and nihilism. By contrast, he contends that faith requires a hermeneutics of affirmation and symbolic depth. New atheists like Christopher Hitchens set up a straw man by arguing that the Gospels must in some sense be literally true which leaves no room for a subtler and deeper approach beyond sophisticated and educated disbelief. We can follow pioneers like Meister Eckhart and Blake, as David suggests, and he could also have mentioned the work of Swedenborg in the 18th century, who symbolically explained the meaning of what his contemporaries took literally. So while I personally would not entirely bracket off what we call the supernatural from the natural, I am persuaded by David's overall argument that a symbolic approach is the only meaningful way forward. This book is a significant and welcome contribution to this important debate. My second book is entitled An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story by Jeremy L. Sabella, which is also a film by Martin Doblemeyer. I first read Reinhold Niebuhr's Moral Man and Immoral Society in May 1979, and thereby hangs a tale. I was teaching in Edinburgh at the time, and took some naval cadets out in a dinghy 
on the Firth of Forth, when a squall blew up, the boat capsized, and down went an impressive pair of binoculars and an expensive camera. However, the book floated and survived the incident. Reinhold Niebuhr, 1892-1971, is rightly characterized as American conscience, although he's perhaps best known for the serenity prayer. God give us grace to accept with serenity things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things that should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. This prayer is also a good commentary on his life of spiritual activism, beginning as a young pastor in Detroit, where he attacked Henry Ford for his hypocrisy and poor treatment of his workers. As indicated above, this is both a book and a DVD describing Niebuhr's influence, and incidentally how his approach differed from his theologian brother H. Richard Niebuhr, a professor at Yale. Perhaps his essential parameters are the relationship between love, justice and power, applied in a variety of situations and contexts. He was an early advocate of an engaged social gospel, appealing to conscience, but also recognizing human limits and incapacities. Moral Man and Immoral Society was the first book to bring him into prominence. It was widely read as well as fiercely criticized, especially by liberals, who imagine that egoism of individuals is being progressively checked by the development of rationality or the growth of a religiously inspired goodwill, and that nothing but the continuance of this process is necessary to establish social harmony between all human societies and collectives. The problem arises when the selfishness of the individual is sublimated into national or group egoism, so moral people can behave immorally within a group. Later, Niebuhr said he would have adjusted the title along the lines of Immoral Man and His Even Less Moral Society, all of which points to the limitations of the human, what Christian theologians would call sin or the fallen state, and other more secular thinkers' egoism. As we have seen only too clearly in the history of the 20th century, reason is insufficient for us to progress from ignorance to knowledge, from superstition to enlightenment, from brutishness to civilization. This was clear even as early as 1790 in France, with the reason-inspired reign of terror. Ironically, when Niebuhr became involved in government policy issues in the late 1940s, he also had a 600-page FBI file, which itself is indicative of the ambivalent nature of power. He realized the implications of atomic power developed by science, but also the danger of naive American exceptionalism that justified violence against a supposed evil enemy, in this case communism, that had to be resisted by force, even nuclear. Niebuhr, however, was not a pacifist and changed his approach towards intervention during the First World War and later with respect to Hitler. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent a year at the Union Theological Seminary in the 1930s, where Niebuhr was teaching. Interestingly, Niebuhr regarded Bonhoeffer's theology as rather thin and merely the handmaid of social ethics. One should note, though, that Paul Tillich also taught there with his theology of being. 
During the 1950s, Niebuhr found that US leaders no longer wanted to hear about the corrosive character of power or the moral peril of hubris, as the CIA took an increasingly subversive international role with government distancing itself through the tactic of plausible denial. At the same time, Niebuhr's thinking had an influence on Martin Luther King and later on President Carter, who appears on the film. Such people are concerned with the relationship between means and ends and the role of political power, intervention and coercion. Rather than the US image as a crusader for freedom and justice, Niebuhr suggested that a better image might be the bumbling knight from Don Quixote, and this did not go down well. A stroke slowed Niebuhr down in his late 50s, but he continued to work at the central themes of love, justice, and power. He formed a close friendship with Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and they spent many hours walking and talking together, sharing their vision of social justice, their withering condemnation of injustice, and their clarion call to hope. Niebuhr asked his friend to speak at his funeral. Hence a Jew was giving the eulogy for one of America's greatest Christian theologians. Heschel remarked on his purity of heart, disgust with intellectual falsehood and with spiritual sham, the strength given to our faith and the wisdom imparted to our minds. For many in the film, his inspiration was one of moral courage and audacity, speaking truth to power and not flinching from the consequences of being true to one's conscience. In fact, putting the serenity prayer into practice. Thank you very much for listening. And in the next episode, I shall be reviewing two books by David Ray Griffin on 9-11 and American foreign policy.